Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In three, two, one. How much were drugs and alcohol crucial to the New Orleans scene? Drinking is a big part of it. And here in New Orleans, we have a very educated way of drinking all day. <laughs> so, so what you do is you start, even if it's a brunch or a lunch, and the luncheon goes on all day, and then a little extra, a little this, and you meet for drinks on the front porch. There's a culture around the drinking. So you're supposed to drink civilized for many, many hours. This is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. The guy you just heard from is Anders Osborne. And he's going to tell you a wild drug-fueled story that, frankly, I can relate to a lot. My friends used to call me the pharmacist because everywhere I went, I had a ton of drugs on me. I'd snort coke or smoke crack in the car, then head to work like it was just totally normal behavior. Then I couldn't wait to do more drugs when I got home. I live in Colorado, a state with high rates of addiction, depression, and suicide. These things affect everyone. I'm really tired of looking at my Facebook feed and seeing news of another friend who overdosed or died by suicide. So this podcast is about comeback stories, not just from drugs, but that's where we're going to start. I've been clean for five years now, and when I hear songs like this about a person overcoming addiction, I pay attention. My feet are sinking and my mind is soft. All I can think about is all I lost Yeah, I got lucky and I got out But to stay sober is hard to think about Anders Osborne is a songwriter and one of the country's best-known blues guitarists. On stages all over the world, he leans into the music. But I'm learning it's okay In a way, Anders Osborne has a typical story about a talented musician who got tangled up in drugs and alcohol. But his story isn't typical at all. He was born in Sweden, and you could still hear the slightest trace of an accent. But he moved to New Orleans when he was young. And let's just say the city and its music culture and its drinking culture had a huge effect on him. What was your personal experience like with drugs and booze around that time when you you were just kind of getting started? Uh, I mean, a lot of drinking, um, not a bunch of cocaine, but there was cocaine and then there were prescription drugs, a lot of weed, mushrooms, drive a little acid and, and, and if you needed to, you would do some cocaine with the acid and mm-hmm. to, cause you didn't want it to last only 11 hours. You needed <laughs> another four. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't short, don't shortchange that buzz. No, I'm seriously. Yeah. So that was basically what we all did. And then a little heroin shows up and you smoke a little bit of that. But it was pretty innocent in the beginning. 
to regular normal people who, who uh, that doesn't sound too innocent, right? But I understand what you're <laughs> saying because yeah. I remember when I was doing all those drugs that you mentioned, they weren't really a problem for me because I, like any drug addict, I remember a time in my life when drugs were fun and they weren't causing problems. Yeah, they were working. For a long time, they really did add uh, not just the feeling you were looking for, but the dimension you were looking for. Mm. You wanted the connection between the architecture, the trees, and the other people, and the weird dressing up. <laughs> all that stuff, it all goes hand in hand. I think it's a, literally what they call a drug culture. Mm -hmm. The one thing that happened, the more the career took off and the more the the pressures kind of, uh, I don't know, they just, they stepped up. Anders' career began to take off in a serious way at this time. He was touring more, and other artists recorded his songs, like Keb Moe, Johnny Lang, and Tim McGraw, who recorded this song that Anders co-wrote. All I want to do is let it be and be with you and watch the wind blow by. And all I want to see is you and me go on forever like the clear blue sky. That track landed on the top of the country charts, which meant Anders had more income to spend on booze and drugs. You and I. The roots of addiction often start well before you begin using. Anders points to some difficult times in his childhood. His parents divorced when he was young, and Anders often felt like he didn't fit in with other kids. He says those experiences fueled his dependency on alcohol and other drugs, and that dependency started to get more serious. He remembers one particular binge that lasted five days. I had just met my wife now, and we've been out for many days and i woke up about five days into this run and um and i had this kind of like a pair of karate pants or or you know so you're so you're getting drunk all weekend wearing karate pants who hasn't done that yeah they're karate <laughs> pants and i had no underwear underneath <laughs> and so i asked my girlfriend at the time and i said did i wear this she said yep the whole weekend. This is, we rode cabs, we saw some of your friends, we scored, we did all kinds of stuff, and that's what you were wearing. Oh, man, Proud Anders. and loud. Proud and... <laughs> and this was for five days. Yeah, five days. And then I also asked, because I couldn't find my guitar, my electric guitar, which was kind of a, a big deal for me. It's a 1968 Black Strat. That and the 62 Strat, both of them were gone. Wow. Those guitars really meant a lot to me. And to not know where they are or where they were and how they got lost or anything, that was my first kind of indication that something's not right. What do you remember about coming out of that blackout? Uh, I remember, I don't know, it's not despair, but to not be able to grasp at all what has happened for five days and to have no idea what I said or what I did. And then all I know is I walked around naked for five days, like in public. I lost the two things that I value the most, 
professionally. And I have no idea what happened. None. It made me, for the first time, I think, reflect over how many times stuff like that had happened. I mean, just an endless amount of film started to play in my head. Mm, so the tape is playing, the greatest hits, right? Yeah, the greatest And it started, and I couldn't really see the whole tape at that time. It came later. But it started to play, and I, I really freaked out, and I said, I have to stop. I, I really can't go on like this. This is a problem. I'm not like everybody else. And I think that dawned on me that time, for real. So I, I try to, you know... Try to quit. I find this part of Andrew's story really amazing. He stayed sober for months, and he went through a lot of self-reflection. Andrew says he stopped playing live because he realized he was struggling with getting up in front of crowds and performing. The drugs had helped make that a lot easier for him. And without them, he stepped away from live shows for a while. He says he stayed home, got into painting, and smoked a lot of cigarettes. Did you try to go through recovery at this time, or was it cold turkey? No, okay. this was uh, cold turkey and white knuckling, and yeah. like I said, isolation was pretty total. I mean, I didn't go anywhere, do anything. I just stayed home and painted the whole time. Anders' life was exciting on a personal level. He'd gotten married and had two kids, but he and his wife also had a miscarriage. And then while he was still trying to stay sober, his mother passed away. I think the death of my mother was, that was probably the catalyst. Pretty much within a few months of that, I started to go to wine tastings. And I, I remember I told my wife, no, 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 it's going to be fine. I'm spitting out. I'm not swallowing anything. <laughs> I just always, I've always been super into wines. You know that. And she goes, no, I don't know that. I'm like, oh, you're stupid. I've always been into wines. I've collected wines before I met you. Wine was like my big thing. You uh-huh. didn't know that? Oh, my God. I love wines. Anyway, I'm not drinking it. I'm just tasting it and spitting it out. It's wonderful. So I did that every Thursday. I lasted three, four months without swallowing. That's pretty remarkable, actually. <laughs> yeah, looking back, talk about torturing yourself. Just swallow that damn thing. So what I did was, I remember it very vividly. We're sitting around this table and the wines and the pinots and all this stuff, and everybody's like, oh my God, you're so talented. I can't believe your palate. It's incredible. I go, I don't know, I know, I've been doing it forever. It's just, it's natural to me. I should be a winemaker in France, I think. That is my calling. And they're like, yeah, totally, you could do it. And then boom, I swallowed, and I never forget that. That's amazing the whole chest opens up your brain everything all the signals start shooting like crazy and you just go i'm back and you just know it you know it's happening you were playing with fire for so long it's like you know the old saying in recovery you hang out at a barber shop long enough you're gonna get your hair cut and that's exactly what happened with you Um, i got a trim so (laughs) so as i swallowed that it was on. I mean, it was on, on, on. And then from that point on, within that next week, a friend of mine is, I hear in the stall next to me, like, and I go, hand me some of that. And he's like, no, man. I said, shut up. I've been back doing it for months. Don't worry about it. Give it to me. So he does. And that's it. I stayed out all night. But the next morning I'm scoring again. And it was on seven or eight years of absolute raging hell. 
Okay, well, let's talk about that. When you say it was on, what did your drinking look like at that time? What were you consuming? How much? How often? I guess what was a day in the life of Anders Osborne during this really crazy period? Uh, I don't know, four, five bottles of wine, a case of beer, fifth of something, pretty daily, um, one or two eight balls. I cook half of it. Anders, that's ridiculous. That's in a ridiculous amount of booze and drugs. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And it, <laughs> but what I loved the most, which is something that really helped my recovery, was to discover that I'm an alcoholic. And that simplifies things so perfectly for me. It just brings it down to one thing, which is if you don't drink, none of the other stuff shows up. And that's me. That's how it works for me. So you were just doing this all the time, but you were married with kids. What? How was your substance abuse affecting your, your family? I had a little day bed out on the back porch, and so I was isolating out there, and I wasn't allowed to come in the house. Oh, so your and wife, had, got... had she kicked you out of the house at that point? Yeah, not right away. We We struggled for several years. You know, we used to go out together. We used to go have dinners and, and hang out with friends and go see shows, go to strip bars. And, you know, we had a great time. We were very classy. <laughs> <laughs> so literally, I think after a few years of that extreme back porch stuff, you know, and I kept painting out there and there was paint on everything and all my clothes. And finally, she said, you can't be inside anymore. And the kids... This is really starting to affect everything. So she put me outside. And then after, you know, God bless her. She put up with that for a couple of years. She then kicked me out totally and I wasn't allowed to live at the house. So I ended up with a friend who then also kicked me out. And then I lived on the park bench out here in the park. And a lot of times people think addiction is just the use. The use is a symptom. The addiction is how it affects everybody else. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that really is the impactful part of being addicted to sex, drugs, alcohol, work, anything. If you are obsessing over anything, and in my case, I couldn't pick up the kids, father-daughter dance, I'll be, you know, I was on day four, I've been up forever, I had to go keep smoking up in the little kid stall and... I mean, it was just horrific. So you were getting high at your kid's elementary school during a father-daughter dance. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's devastating when you start, you know, getting the, t- like we said, the tape starts playing back. And then it, like the addiction part is, has nothing to do with having a drink with your friends. Well, and that's the, that's the crazy thing. I can I can relate. When my brother got married, I I had to stay alert for it. So I did cocaine in the in the church bathroom before I went and was part of his wedding crew. It just made perfect sense to me to do that. Oh yeah, thank you Jesus. It's perfect. <laughs> and and were you still performing around this time? The last 2 years was very difficult. I just couldn't make it. The last 2 years I couldn't make it. I missed all the flights and Never made the gigs if it was out of town. Then nobody could work with me. I mean, managers dropped me and record labels and everybody. But there's always that one or two friend or person or or associate that goes, we got to do something. It's often really painful to look back on memories like this. 
Anders captured that feeling, that sense of desperation, in a song later on that he called Coming Down. This ain't a relapse, it's more like a bounce. Way up in heaven and back to the ground. Keep your arms wide open, baby. Yeah, I'm coming down. After, you know, being up for days or, you know, using for a period, as I was coming down, I realized that, you know, there was no one there. There was no one to catch me. It's just me every time. So I wrote a tune about it. So keep your arms wide open, baby, I'm coming down. But Anders wasn't alone. In fact, some of his peers in the New Orleans music scene showed up for him when he was most desperate. Some of his closest friends, including legends like Ivan Neville and Dr. John, got Anders a bed in a Los Angeles treatment facility. All Anders had to do was get there from New Orleans. I mean, these guys all had your back. And, and so now you're on a they flight. Did, they... you're, you're on your way to rehab. Talk me through the early days of that. Were you ready? Were you finally ready? No, not even close. <laughs> it was bad. And, and, you know, the alcohol detox was horrific this time. It was brutal. I couldn't walk. I couldn't oh, stand up. They had to carry me to the meetings. And, yeah. and I had never had that before where it was alcohol was giving me that much grief. They called my manager and they said, there's nothing we can do for him. He's got such severe wet brain. He hasn't said one single thing we understand. I don't think we can save him. He needs a very different help. This is a rehab center saying this to your manager. I mean, they're used to really bad cases. Yeah, I was, I was a mess. Anders slowly started to regain some focus. He remembers the staff being tough on him at first, but then they started becoming kinder and more encouraging. But rehab can be chaotic. One of his roommates jumped out of the window of their room each night to go find drugs. That guy didn't last very long in rehab, but Anders did. And he started to wrestle with some missed opportunities from the past. At what point did you have the aha moment? Yeah, you, you were obviously, you know, not w- ready or willing to get sober. You're seeing guys crawl out of your window. Uh, when did you finally have the moment where, okay, everything fell into place? I think close to a month into it, um, I was sitting in that room and I don't know, I think I was clean for the first time, no drinking or nothing. And uh, that tape started playing again. And uh, this time it was, uh, it was like everything from the age of 12 and 13. It just started playing, just kept playing and playing and it wouldn't stop and I started, I don't know, I started getting really kind of upset, and it was weird, you know. And so you see everything I've done. I I climbed Mount Olympus, and uh, I traveled all over the, you know, Europe and Africa, and all I could remember in my head was how drunk I was and how high I was everywhere, every single place I went to. I got to Mount Olympus. We got to the summit. And the next morning, we're supposed to go to the peak. And I couldn't because I was too hungover. So I missed it. So I walked all the way up there for two and a half days. And then I sat at the summit being hungover. And then I walked down. Just insane. Wow. And then, you know, the meeting of my wife and all the breakups. 
And then the kids, I left them, you know. I missed Christmases and birthdays, and I wasn't there. And instead, I was in the crack house somewhere, and when that starts playing in your head, and I think what happened was, you know, I, you kind of see clearly who you really are. Yep, it's um. You okay? Yeah. Andrews, I actually think, you know, go ahead, take a minute. If you need to use the restroom or or get a glass of water, by all means. Okay, I'll be right back. Stick around. After this, Anders finds a way to get clean, piece his life back together, and change the lives of a lot of other musicians with similar struggles. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a back from broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. Anders Osborne learned a lot in that residential rehab facility, and it was rough. The counselors told him he should probably spend about six months there before trying to resume his music career. But Anders did something pretty scary, maybe even crazy. He left rehab after just five weeks. I need to work. I worked my whole life to play music, and so I just have to start showing people that I'm reliable and accountable and that I can do a good job. And then the money will go back and hopefully increase, and it can be a good income. I had a house that I, or I still have that house, but I love this house. The reason why I left early or after just five weeks, I said, I have to go back to work. I have to save the house. And my wife says, I don't want to live with you. You, I I don't know if this is going to work. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. Just give me one month to hit the road really hard. I'm not worth much right now, but let me go out there and see if I can save the house to get one month of uh, mortgage payment. And she said, all right, I'll do that. So I said, you don't have to stay with me. We can still separate. We can sell the house after that, but we'll own it. It'll be ours. It's really hard to understate how bold of a move this is. As Anders puts it, part of getting clean was learning to hand your decision-making over to counselors who gradually teach you how to make better decisions. Going back on tour early, surrounded by drugs and alcohol, was a massive decision for someone who's new to sobriety. You needed to work, but at the same time, you had to stay sober. Uh, what, what was that experience like? It was horrific, to be honest with you. I mean, at the first run we did, the first two weeks on the road there, it was like, you know, a heroin 
addict drummer and my old dealer was my road manager and the bass player was a big weed head. And were, th- were they still using when when you were? Yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Um, but you know, everybody was helpful. They were trying, but I just couldn't find any relief. And I would have people throw me eight balls on stage or find me before the show and slap some drugs and you know bring a, a beautiful bottle of something scotch or wine or something that constantly dropping off drugs and alcohol see if they could you know hook up a little party get us going so i had to fend that off when you would walk onto the stage you're oftentimes walking by a bar right people drinking at the bar if you play 150 plus dates a year you know, that's that's hanging out in the barbershop. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're there every single night. And going back on stage sober felt strange to Anders. He compared it to the feeling of throwing up. And he says it took him months to feel comfortable simply standing on stage during a performance, even though he'd been doing it for years. What about playing guitar itself? Did that take a while to kind of figure out, like just the chords, the fingering, everything? Yeah, a little bit, but it was more, rather than knowing how to do it, uh, that wasn't the hardest part. The worst part was knowing that I wasn't that good. So I started playing, and I, what came back was very limited. I realized okay. that a, a lot of it had been posturing. A lot of it had been, you know... Uh, sort of an attitude. You wrote a song, Mind of a Junkie, and I'm just going to read off a few of the lyrics here. Um, I'm nervous, I'm sweaty. I hate to make amends Bunch of opinions I'm always on a fence Pissed off and sad at the same time Please somebody save me from my crazy mind When did you write that? Uh, first two, three months of recovery. And this was just what, your experience of, of being sober? Well, that was the early sobriety and the the connecting of, you know, trying to be sober and looking back at not being sober and and also in sobriety in the beginning, you live in a mind that is, you know, it's it's not healthy at all. Yeah, I mean, it's heavy stuff. And I think as someone who who remembers what early recovery it was like, you're in this tug of war between your former self and the person who you really want to be. Yep. I've been living in the mind of a junkie, thinking my To a recovering addict who's trying to stay sober on tour, a club is like an obstacle course or a minefield, really. But then one night, two friends showed up at uh, one of Anders' shows, and this moment changed everything. They came from one of his recovery groups just to support him. Two guys from AA asked me if they wanted me to come and just come sit with me. And I was a little, I don't know, confused. I said, what do you mean, come sit with me? I don't know. We just come sit with you while you play. I'm like, sure. So they show up and they sit uh, next to the stage on two chairs, these two burly guys, beautiful cats, and they just sat there. They didn't do anything. They just sat there. And I remember feeling 
like, I don't know, I felt felt accountable for doing a good job playing music. I'm supposed to do this. This is my job. And accountable for, and I'm sober, and I better be sober. And then I felt a little safer that someone that knows exactly everything about me and the addiction part of me better than anybody else, better than my family, they're here. They know exactly who I am. And that felt safe. Your buddies in rehab who decided to show up for the gig, that was a preview to something that you would eventually create. So a few years into being sober and performing and you know getting more comfortable with it, I thought, what if I would have had in the beginning some kind of network where I could have uh, sober people come out and they could be there, keep me company, and people like me, um, it probably would have been a lot easier to go back to work mm-hmm. and to feel comfortable. So we started Send Me a Friend Foundation, which is exactly that. It's a network nationwide. I don't have the exact number because it grows every day, but I'd say it's close to 5,000 people nationwide. And basically what we do is 30 minutes before performance time and 30 minutes after, we can send someone. You can request, whether you're a sound engineer, lighting director, uh, roadie, musician, artist, superstar, or totally unfamous and you're playing on Bourbon Street, yeah. But you need help. We can send somebody that can come sit with you and they keep you company while you work. And that's it. It's just someone, a, a sober friend, just being present. Yeah. We're not going to meetings. We're not necessarily doing anything particularly to keep you sober, but we're there to keep you working. Because the hardest part is, you know, to be as broke as you usually are after you get clean. In my case, I, I mean, I couldn't, we couldn't buy food for the kids. We had no money. So I had to work. So I thought, you know, this could be a good way for music industry people to go back to work in a pretty sketchy uh, environment. And Anders has other plans for transforming the concert experience, not just for musicians in recovery, but for audience members trying to stay sober. He dreams of having a sober section at concerts that offer non-alcoholic beverages to help the audience members trying to stay clean feel like they're having a little more fun. These days, Anders says he lives a much healthier life. He runs four or five miles a day. He's been diagnosed as bipolar and received treatment for his mental health challenges. But he still has vivid memories of how much work it took to feel confident about his recovery. In fact, he wrote a song about it. I'm standing in a church I'm a huge fan of Buddha and the Blues. Thank you. I just think it's beautiful. I think it's your best work. Um, how does Buddha and the Blues relate to your recovery and where you are in life right now? The first, I don't know, four, five, six years in recovery, it's like you're backing away from a fire. You constantly walking you're facing this this danger over there and you keep walking away from it like i'm backing away i'm backing away but i'm keeping an eye on this thing (laughs) and then all of a sudden 
you have turned around and that for me anyway it's as if i had turned around and i'm no longer backing away from it i am now choosing where to go it's a new direction yeah i sometimes think of what performers like you see when you're at the venue a lot of people partying smoking weed drinking have you become neutral to that yet yeah it's i don't see it too much um I don't know. I, it's like I see the people more now. I don't see the crowd. I don't see the ambitious part of, you know, a lot of people came to see me. I see us coming together. I see individual people with their individual needs when I look out in the crowd. So what do you tell people who want to be sober but feel like the world around them is making it really rough? I think be very, very gentle with yourself. Be, take it nice and slow. Don't, don't beat yourself up over the use or non-use or what you should or should not do. And, and just start from that place of, of self-care and love. And then I think very, very important, which I learned in the AA rooms, is people, places, and things. You have to start being harder on the people, places, and the things around you. Not yourself. Don't beat yourself up because you're beautiful. But look at the things you have chosen to represent you. If you have your five closest people and they're all heavy drinkers, then you're in the wrong company. There's nothing wrong with you or them. It's just this, that's the wrong company for you if you want to get clean. Yeah. That's the key thing for me. It's people, places, and things. You have to make some adjustments. And then you'll see how vast all the possibilities are in your life. You have a choice uh, between feeling blue or um, serene. You get to choose. Anders Osborne continues to write, record, and tour. He lives with his wife and two kids who stuck with him through all of his struggles with addiction. And his Send Me a Friend network continues to grow. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. And if you're struggling with addiction, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Hi, this is Doug from Denver, and this is what happened in my recovery this week. Part of my recovery, a big part of my recovery, is giving back to the community. And we ran a toy drive where we were able to give over 700 gifts to folks, and it just really makes me feel good just to help other people that are in need. Hey, this is Hunter from Denver, Colorado, and this week I finished my first uh, semester of grad school. Uh, this gives me hope because I never thought I'd have a college degree, much less have the opportunity to, you know, go to grad school and do these things um, to, to continue to improve my life. We'd love to hear how you're doing in your recovery, and we might share it on this podcast. Record a voice memo or MP3 and send it to Vic at backfrombroken.org. If you know someone who might benefit from stories like this, please share this podcast with them. We spent more than a year building this show. Research, interviews, production, editing. 
because we know it's going to help a lot of people. But it does cost money to do these kinds of things. The people who listen to this podcast, people just like you, make it a reality. You can give a little bit now at backfrombroken.org. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Thanks to people in recovery who helped us develop this podcast. Ben, Matthew, Sean, and Mateo, thank you so much for your guidance. The show is produced by Rebecca Romberg and John Pino. Rachel Estabrook and Curtis Fox edited this episode. Our executive producers are Brad Turner and Kevin Dale. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find it.